Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia Glova. It's a slow week in Washington as everyone celebrates the holidays and rings in the new year. But for those of you listening this week, I'm featuring the best of Cato Daily Podcast. Each day until the new year, tune in for one of Cato's finest previously aired podcast commentaries. Director of Budget Studies Stephen Slavinsky is the author of Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government, a new book that chronicles the rise of out-of-control spending under the modern GOP. Stephen is here to talk about his research in today's daily podcast. Stephen, what is your book about? Let me just tell a quick story about Ronald Reagan and sort of what inspired the idea generally. Uh, He used to work a fable in some of his speeches where he would talk about how fiscal conservatives viewed Washington. They would look at it and they'd see this cesspool riddled with filth and these awful pork projects and government programs. And they want to get elected to try to change that. And they get elected and they get to Washington, D.C., and suddenly they're seduced by big government. Next thing you know, it doesn't feel very much like a cesspool. It feels a lot more like a hot tub. So the book was really an attempt to try to see and explain why Washington, D.C. feels so much like a hot tub to so many Republicans. In other words, why were Republicans so willing to sort of sell out their fiscal conservative base, uh, essentially sell out the type of views that got them to power in the first place, going all the way back to Goldwater and then Reagan. Looking at the Republican Party pretty much over the past 25 years, you see this general trend away from the ideals of smaller government, the kind of things that Cato Institute talks about practically on a daily basis. And so the goal of the book is to try to explain how this all came to pass. So then how does this administration compare with previous administrations in terms of spending? Not so well as you can imagine. If you look at what happened to government in the 1990s, you saw under Clinton and a Republican Congress, government spending as a percentage of GDP was going from about 21% of GDP down to about 17.5% of GDP. Once George W. Bush got into office and you had Republican control of Congress, you saw the trend line shoot in the opposite direction. It's now at about 20.8-21% of GDP or so in terms of government spending. And so we're pretty much at a point now where Bush and the Republican Congress have effectively overturned the Republican revolution. And if you look at terms of growth rates, uh, George Bush has presided over and Republican Congress have presided over uh, the biggest spending increase since Lyndon B. Johnson. That's after adjusting for inflation and the number of years they've been in office. Now, a lot of White House defenders will say, well, you know, we have the war on terrorism. We need to spend more money on that. And that's what's driving the budget growth. Well, it actually isn't. Uh, Less than one third of the overall budget growth has anything to do with the war on terrorism. And that includes the war in Iraq, which many of us at Cato would not even call a part of the war on terrorism. But even if you include that, only a very small portion, less than one third of the overall spending increase had anything to do with the war on terror. But even if you take those out of the equation, and even if you take out things like entitlement spending, which Republicans claim they don't really have much control over, which is also a lie, as I explained in the book, but let's go ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt. Take those two categories off the table. Bush and the Republican Congress actually come off looking worse than Lyndon B. Johnson. They've actually spent faster than LBJ. And it harkens back to the days of uh, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, two big spending, big government Republicans in their own right. Now we have a Republican Party that looks more like the kind that Barry Goldwater was fighting against 
than the kind that Reagan imparted to Republicans when he left office in 1988. So I think we're really in a, in a strange situation for fiscal conservatives. They don't know who to vote for anymore. They're, they're left out in the cold. They don't want to vote for a Democrat because they are the party of even bigger government. They don't want to vote for a Republican anymore because now they represent the party of big government. Where's the constituency or where's the political leadership really for a, a party of small government? We just don't see that today. And I think that's going to have very real impact on the elections in 2006 and 2008. Why do you think that the modern GOP has given up on its strategy of being the party of small government? There was a change in focus among Republican leaders uh, shortly after the 1996 midterm or 1996 congressional elections, I should say, where the goal was no longer to fight against big government. It was instead to be liked in a sense, sort of a, be liked by the mainstream media, be liked by people in Washington, lobbyists, etc. And Republicans wanted to use that to their advantage. They wanted to be able to build this political machine. And they seemed to begin to see that big government was a way to achieve that. You could start handing out earmarked pork projects to individual constituent groups who then would tell their lobbyists to make sure that they treated Republicans nicely. And there was sort of the symbiotic relationship between big government and Republicans. It got to the point where instead of being elected for the purposes of downsizing government, they now found their purpose to be elected just to also be reelected as well. Effectively, what they were doing is they were building this contraption, this sort of vote-getting machine that effectively made them part of big government. They'd been assimilated by the big spending apparatus that is Congress today. And as a result, they were so close to the system, they weren't able to shut the contraption down. They were, in a sense, assimilated by big government. And I think part of that had to do with the fact that we had united Republican government at both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. No longer were Republicans trying to throw a punch against big government because they'd hit their own teammates in the process. And so to to rally against big government was effectively now to rally against fellow Republicans. They didn't want to do that, and so they were locked into this partisan pigeonhole. As a result, government then grew like mad. And now we have growth rates that rival uh, the Tip O'Neill Congresses of the Democrats in the past in the 1970s, and that rivals the growth of government under Lyndon B. Johnson. Where do you think this is going to take the GOP in the November elections? It's quite possible that a lot of conservatives, fiscal conservatives, self-proclaimed fiscal conservatives, are going to want to stay home uh, in November of 2006 because they don't really see their point of view reflected in a lot of the Republican candidates that are being put out there. I think you see a parallel of this uh, back in the 1998 congressional elections. The number of self-described fiscal conservatives actually dropped in terms of their voter turnout by about 6% from 1994 to 1998. The reason that's important is twofold. One is it shows that when Republicans sold out their principles, when they effectively turned away from the contract with America and they passed a bloated highway bill and a bloated budget bill, uh, conservatives just got really peeved and figured, well, what's the point of showing up for Republicans to vote for them if they're just going to do the same thing Democrats used to do? Uh, There was a two percentage point difference between the number of votes Republicans got nationally and Democrats got nationally. It's a pretty small margin. And the fact that they actually lost two seats in that specific congressional election shows that this the idea that if you appeal to fiscal conservative voters, you could end up making yourself better off electorally. They forgot that lesson in 1998. I think they're forgetting it now, too. And so it's quite possible that you'll see turnout lower among fiscal conservative voters, and that could potentially uh, imperil the GOP congressional majority. Wouldn't the loss of the GOP congressional majority in 2006 be a good thing for supporters of limited government? I think it would be. I think if you look at the numbers coming all the way from World War II onward, you find that periods of divided government tend to be periods of slower growth in government. That's because you have this 
soft form of gridlock, and you've got one side fighting against the other. As a result, the status quo is a much smaller government than it would be otherwise if one party had its way entirely. And I also think it's important to point out that if you look at the policy successes that fiscal conservatives and limited government supporters have had over the years. It all came during periods of divided government. The 1986 tax reform bill, which was the closest we've ever gotten to a flat tax, occurred under divided government. The 1996 welfare reform bill also occurred under divided government. The Base Realignment and Closure Commission, uh, what they call the BRAC Commission, that was actually uh, passed in in the early 90s when we had divided government. So again, you start to see a lot of these policy successes occurring in a period of divided government. That doesn't mean that We're always going to see those sorts of policy successes if the Democrats, for instance, win Congress. But I think the the point that Republicans are going to have to defend is that we'd all be better off if they kept Congress. I think the weight of evidence supports the notion that we would not be any worse off if Republicans lost the congressional majority. I'm willing to see what happens. And I think uh, the idea that the founders put together of checks and balances and that this form of gridlock would actually be a check on government growth, that's probably a much more potent form of check on government than any sort of Republican promise to cut spending ever will be. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.